the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. All right, we are in uh, Didache chapter 4. And as I've mentioned Monday and Tuesday, the Didache is basically the catechism of the early church. And these were the things when they would have neophyte Christians come into the presence of the Christian church and they say, yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to, um, I want to have what you have. Then the early church cobbled together these, these things that they wanted to teach catechumens. Uh, and then as, as when they taught these things, then they would baptize the catechumens. And so that is kind of what this Didache is. It's the teaching of the early disciples, the, the early apostles, kind of put together in a form that's more of a catechism than it is just the Gospels or the, or the letters of Paul or any of the, or the epistles. Um, and we've talked about the way of life, and now we're into uh, the duties of the catechumen as they're being involved in the church life, which is part of the way of life. We've mentioned this before, but every Christian should be connected to other Christians. Uh, that's how you grow in your faith. That's how you get sustenance for living. When, when bad things happen or dark things happen in your life, being connected to other Christians who understand God's grace and his love and his mercy and they can surround you with that love and that grace and that mercy, whatever you need in the moment, um, that is so important and critical to your growth uh, as a Christian. So... In chapter four, we're talking about what it means to be part and connected to the church. And uh, so we've we made it all the way to chapter four, verse five. And verse five was talking about, uh, no, verse six. Well, let's just look at verse six again. Um, verse six, which is about in the middle of this, maybe five lines from the bottom. Verse six of whatsoever thou hast gained by thy hands, thou shalt give a ransom for thy sins. So um, in the, this, this almost talks about, it, it seems like the way this read, it almost reads like an indulgence in the early church, right? Which is uh, an indulgence was an amount of money that you paid that was kind of like a ransom for sin. Uh, and it was, it was violated terribly during the 1500s which is why the Protestant Reformation happened because Luther fought against indulgences because he said, no, the penalty for sin is death, but Jesus paid the penalty. You don't have to pay any, any amount of money as a ransom for your sin. Jesus paid the whole entire price as a ransom for sin. But it's easy to see, well, there's a couple ways I guess you could look at this. One is, that it's easy to see that people want to get off easy, right? They want to, they want to pay. A, we all, as human beings, we always want to pay something for the penalty for our sin. We don't want to let Jesus do it. We want ourselves to do it, and um, it is it is a hard doctrine for us to believe that Jesus uh, paid everything, paid all prices for our sin. But that is the truth. There is nothing we can do and there is nothing that we will ever do to pay a ransom for our own trespasses and sin. 
We would be dead in our sin if it wasn't for Jesus who took upon himself the price and the ransom for sin. So we as human beings don't have to do anything. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to do something, that we don't want to make a retribution for sin. Uh, and so it's easy to see that in the early church that they, if people said, I, I, I feel like I need to have a retribution for sin, the church is like, okay, yeah, if you can you can give money for as retribution for sin. I mean, you can kind of see how that would start. But there's, a, there's another aspect to this, which is, um, there is any time we sin, and even though we know that there's any, that there's a spiritual component to sin that has to be paid for by Jesus, which He did, there's still this uneasiness in our life that on the left-hand kingdom. And when I say the left-hand kingdom, it's like it's not our relationship with Jesus. That's the right-hand kingdom stuff. The left-hand kingdom is our relationship to ourself and the earthly world and the world around us and the world that we live in, which is, uh, you can think of this as uh, love God and love your neighbor, right? So love God is the vertical component, um, which is the right-hand kingdom, we love God. And then we love our neighbor, which is the horizontal component, which is the, which is the left-hand kingdom. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation or our standing with God or in the kingdom, but it has to do with our living in the world and all the physical components of the world. Um, and it kind of does. It makes a cross, right? Which is kind of cool. So it's the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom. So when I'm talking about the left-hand kingdom, I'm talking about the things on this earth. Um, and so when I read this, whatever you've gained by your hands, I shall give a ransom for thy sins. I don't see it as a vertical component ransom for our sins that you know trying to get right with God because we could never do that Jesus does that but there are some people in the left-hand kingdom that need to feel ransomed you know they they want to produce something and I guess in Lutheran terms it might be the the third use of the law the first use of the law is that it's a guide the second use of the law is a curb um, but the third use of the law is well, the third use of the law is if we are followers of Jesus Christ and in the kingdom, how then should we live? What are the things that we should do? Because once you're in the kingdom, you want to please the king. And it's pleasing the king. There are things that we want to do in this world to please the king. It's a left-hand thing. I mean, it's my body. It's my life and everything. I want to serve Jesus and I want to do that. And so you so. Uh, so we want to give of ourselves to the king. And if in our head, in the left-hand things, that's kind of a ransom for sin, I think that's okay. But if in our head, that's a ransom for sin, that you know, our giving in a service is, is a ransom for the penalty of sin in, in the kingdom, Jesus took care of the whole entire penalty. Uh, and that really is the beauty of the Reformation because um, you, as you can see, this could be really, really abused. I mean, you could have a church. You, well, we did have a church that was just go, ravishing Europe by going into communities and villages and saying, you need to pay a ransom for sin. And they were collecting a huge amount of money, and then they were taking all this money back to Rome so they could build St. Peter's Basilica, which is a beautiful building. I mean, I'm, I'm, the, the money went to, you know, to a use that that's just creates beauty in this world, which you know, is what they felt was important at that time. But but putting it on the backs and the soles of our eternal salvation, that's where it, that, I think that's where it comes into a problem. 
You never want to burden somebody's eternal salvation by something that they do because Jesus paid the whole entire price. And by the time of the Reformation, this, is, this, is, this was pervasive uh, in, in the system and uh, Luther saw it and fought against it. And of course, Reformed not only created the Reformation and all the churches and denominations that came out of the Reformation, but it really created a Reformation in Rome, which was long overdue. Um, as a matter of fact, there are some Roman Catholics, very few, that so much appreciate Luther because there would never have been a Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church if it hadn't been the Reformation that Luther started. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of France. They love Luther in France, but it's about the only place where they like Luther. If you see Catholic theologians today, uh, most of them here in the United States, they still are very, very angry with Luther. <laughs> and I don't know why. Um, you know what they could do? The Pope could, the Pope could reverse all that, canonize Luther and make him the Order of Luther, you know, like the Order of Francis or, you know, Order of Mary or something like that um, and try to create some unity. But I don't think that'll ever happen in my lifetime. And I'm not sure I want it to happen. I mean, I, I'm okay with the way the system is, but... They, they could, they, Luther was as good for the Roman Catholic Church as he was for the world in general. Um, because there is, just to be very, very clear, any ransom for sin for our eternal security and in the kingdom is only from Jesus. But, it, but there is a desire in the human nature, because we live in the human world, to do something ourselves to, to kind of make retribution for the the. the evil that's caused because of the sin that we do. Let me put it that way. It's like a balance. Um, it's a balance. You know, justice is that balance. You've got the scale. Um, and we do something horrible in this world, and it tips the scale in this world uh, towards evil. And so in this world, we want to do something to tip the balance in the other direction. Let me, let me, let me that's a better way to put it. You know, we want to tip the scale in the other direction for the things of the world, for the left-hand kingdom, because of the impact of the sin that we do. And maybe that's, maybe that's a go, you know, as I think through that, maybe that's a better way to think of all this. Um, has nothing to do with, uh, with being in the kingdom. It has to do with the world that we live in. Anyway, I think I've dogged on that enough. So I'm going to continue going. We're going to go into verse seven and verse seven is one, two, three, four, five lines from the top here. Verse 7, thou shalt not hesitate to give, nor shalt thou grumble when thou givest, for thou shalt know who is the good paymaster of the reward. Um, so, and we, we talk about this in terms of Christian giving, that uh, when, when I speak about giving, uh, I usually say it should be voluntary, cheerful, uh, and proportional, right? I mean, we, nobody should ever force you to give. Uh, I like the idea of proportional giving, that we give a percentage of what God has given us. That's a, that's a great way to think about giving, although it's not the only way to think about giving, but it's a good way to think about giving, proportional, voluntary, um, and then cheerful. Uh, God wants a cheerful giver. So that certainly, you know, that certainly is within uh, the, the realm of the, of the context of Scripture, um, that you shouldn't grumble, you shouldn't hesitate. Um, and this is so true. I've noticed this about people who give. Um, if you've been trained to be a good steward of your resources, and what I mean by a good steward of your resources, everybody has been given resources by God. Everybody. 
It may be $10, it may be $100, $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars, whatever you've been given, that is a gift from God. And we should be able to live within that means. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. And the more complex a society is, the harder that is. So I do not deny that that's, that can be a problem. But without the complexity of government regulation, talking about zoning codes and building codes and causing the price of housing to go, just go out of the roof, which it does, um, you should be able to find a way to live within your means. Um, and if everybody tried to do that, there would be market forces to create products so that everybody could live within their means. Um, so you live within your means. Uh, and if you give, period, I mean, if you, if you are in the habit of giving back to God something that's been given to you, then, um, then you are at peace, you're at harmony, you're not worried about money, you're not worried about funds, you're not worried about resources. I mean, obviously, a catastrophe like the pandemic hits, everyone's worried, right? But I'm just talking about normal day-to-day -day living. Uh, and so, and I've just noticed this. When people align themselves with that way in their life, and then you ask them, you do ask, hey, we've got this need, they don't hesitate at all. It's just, it's like, of course I'm going to give. I, I wouldn't, I mean, it, I'm not even asking how much or anything like that. But just like, yeah, I'll give. There's no question. That, that's a need. I, I perceive it as a need. Um, I see that as our community's in need, and so I'm not going to hesitate. And I'm not going to grumble about it. Um, I, have, I have noticed that so much. And, and you just you see the maturity in some people when you do an, you know, do an ask for giving. And it's like, yeah, I'm there. Tell me, tell me what you need. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. Um, so grateful for mature Christians in this world, that's for sure. Um, so don't hesitate to give. Don't grumble when you give. Um, for you should know who is the good paymaster for the reward. So, and Jesus, of course, is the paymaster. Uh, he's the guy. He's the guy who is the paymaster. All right, we're going to go on to verse 8. Thou shalt not turn away the needy, but shalt share everything with thy brother, and shalt not say what is thine own. For if you are a sharer in the imperishable, how much more in the things which perish? So I, I, this is beautiful. I mean, we store up our treasures uh, in heaven, but we also do work the hands and the feet here on earth. Uh, so we should not turn away the needy. Um, now, this gets really complicated because um, we live in a world where our government, whether it's local, state, federal or whatever, World Health Organization, I mean, whatever these organizations are. There are many, many, many organizations that have been formed to try to, um, to meet the needs of the people who are truly in need in the world. And there, there's all, the, Jesus said the poor will always be with us, but the, the needy, there will always be needs in this world. And so there are lots and lots and lots of governmental agencies uh, in nonprofit agencies throughout the world that are trying to meet the needs and um, there's, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I believe that all of that, that, that way of thinking in Western society, that we should pool together our resources and help out the needy in our own world, you know, in our own community and across the world, all of that comes from, from Jesus and Christianity. People say, um, the United States is no longer a Christian nation because we don't have a theocracy or we don't have a dedicated religion or 
or anything like that. But if you dig deep in the United States, the hardest thing to do in any organization is to create a culture or a DNA. I mean, you, it is hard to, to change the culture and the DNA of any organization. It takes years and years and years and years to create it, and then it takes years and years and years and years to destroy it. The DNA, the underlying DNA or the culture or the things that motivate a culture or an organization, those are very, very hard to change. So the United States was founded. Most of the people that came over to the United States and began creating this great nation all came over from Europe. We're all very deeply religious people. And if you're a deeply if you're a deep follower of Jesus Christ, then you are naturally inclined to give of yourself, of your time, talent, and treasure, because that's that's what Christianity is. And so that is deeply embedded in the DNA of the United States. So even though the government, which sits on top of the DNA, may do things that don't seem very Christian or you know just seem odd or whatever, or ruffle our feathers, if you dig deep into the DNA of Christianity, it is a, it is a, the United States still, I believe, is a community, a country that's, that has that DNA of Christianity and giving of ourselves and caring for our neighbor and stuff like that. Why do I, why do I bring this as a point? Because there are nations across the world still today where it's manny, man, dog, eat dog, um, there is no love whatsoever for their neighbor there. I mean, it's all every man for himself. And you see these in countries all where there is a country that is a, a country without God, without Jesus, a country without this, this DNA, this deep DNA of giving. Um, they're, they're horrible, failing countries that uh, because they spend so much time fighting each other, you know, that they, they don't uh, work together for the common good. I mean, there's just there are nations out there that don't have a DNA of Jesus in them. And, and I would say that they are very, very, very um, bad places to go. Uh, they're becoming less and less, and I think more and more countries today are being, you know, they're helped by, you know, Christ organizations with the DNA Christ of Christianity within them, so they're starting to see that, see the benefit of all that. But when you look at the Mayans or the Aztecs or the Incas or, you know, any of these historical societies where it was man-eat-man, um, where the culture was not one of giving, but one of taking and power. Um, they're, they're just not good cultures. Anyway, so I am very grateful that we, uh, that our DNA of giving to the needy and sharing with thy brother um, is still part of the Christian DNA. And um, everything that we do in this world, when we give of ourselves to the world around us, all those are treasures in heaven. Um, they're also... There are also things on this earth that are going to perish, but what what I, this completely sounds biblical to me. I mean, I could go back to what Jesus says about money and storing up your treasures in heaven and all that. But if we're going to share in the imperishable worlds, then how much more should we share in the imperishable things? Or if we're going to share in the imperishable things, how much more should we share in the things that perish? That definitely rings true to me in my Christian ears. So I don't have any argument with that. Actually, this whole chapter four, verses one through eight, the only thing that really needs some explanation is this whole thing about um, giving a ransom for your sin by, by giving, you know, giving of your hands or whatever. That, that kind of hackles a Protestant's ears, but I think you could probably 
talk yourself into what they're trying to say here. Because uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I do believe about the Didache, uh, because it is so early, it's close to Jesus. It shouldn't be that corrupted, um, if, if you want to say that. So I think a lot of the stuff that's in here should ring true because it should be in alignment with the Gospels and what Jesus said. So that's kind of how I'm going through this. All right, I'm going to... I'm going to turn the page on this and see um, what is next. Yeah, verse 9. Let's just take a look at it. Verse 9, Thou shalt not withhold thine hand from thy son or thy daughter, but thou shalt teach them to fear of God from their youth up. Oh, my goodness. That, that certainly sounds biblical, right? Um, withhold thine hand from thy son or daughter. So in today's society, we don't discipline with corporal punishment, although, uh, and I've talked about this before, when I was a kid, I got corporal punishment all the time. My mom was a general in corporal punishment. She was <laughs> an admiral <laughs> in corporal punishment. Um, she was very, very good at it, and I needed it pretty bad. I was a pretty, pretty uh, wild kid, so I'm grateful that she punished me as much as she did. I, I think I am who I am because she punished me. She let me know that she was serious by, by corporal punishment. Today, we don't, we don't necessarily, and this, this kind of started in the 80s where people started looking at corporal punishment, doing research and saying, is it really helpful or is it really not helpful? Uh, so in the 80s, uh, when Jennifer and I had children, we took a course in our Bible study it was called, I think, Growing Kids God's Way. And uh, the guy that led the study basically went through the Bible and talked about all the different places where it says that you should, um, you know, not withhold your hand from your son or daughter. Because there is language like that in Scripture, and it's, it's here too. Um, but uh, I, I, I've also taken since then, uh, and so when we raised our kids, we, we definitely did have corporal punishment. We we definitely spanked our children. Um, I don't know if they remember that, if they're angry of, uh, over us at that. I don't know. If, I should ask them if they were angry about us having corporal punishment. Um, it wasn't often, and it was only just to get their attention, to let, uh, to let them know the mom and dad were serious. And, um, you know, when it comes to parenting children, you have to at some point get their attention. So whatever it is that you do, if it's not corporal punishment, um, you have to get their attention. I like the physical punishments more than I like the emotional punishments. Um, I, I believe that, um, you know, the last, if you substitute for corporal punishment, kind of a gotcha game, psychological game with your children, you know, threatening things. I mean, I... I mean, the one thing I do like about corporal punishment is you do it, they cry, they don't die from it, and it's over, right? I mean, it's a ransom for their sin, right? Um, but if you, if you substitute that with something that is more messing with their mind, um, then I think they're always trying to second guess. I mean, and I, don't think, I, don't know, I'm, I don't know how to say this, but, but I, I, I just wonder... You know, if you're if you're not going to do physical punishments, then you move into the the area of emotional punishments, or uh, uh, you know. And I, I really do believe that. Um, the I mean, the one benefit of physical punishment is that it uh, it's over, it's done, it's in the realm of physical. 
So there, you know, it, you can tell when it's done. I mean, it, it's, but when you start messing with little kids' minds, you know, I just, I just hope that you're being um, very gentle, you know, because the mind is a, is a horribly complex thing. And the thing you think might go into a mind, you know, may not come out that well. So, I mean, I, and I've thought a lot about punishment because I, I am very grateful for my mom and dad for doing corporal punishment to me. And I know it's not a popular thing today in society. Um, the, the, I guess the physical thing that we do now is um, time out, right? We put our children in time out. And I think if, it's, if time out is enough, I think that's a great way to punish. <clears throat> we never really did time out with our children, but I've seen it. But, um, but I've also seen a lot of kids, um, you know, you, you know, at Walmart, <laughs> you know, the kids having a meltdown and, um, they're, you know, the parents trying to logically tell the kid, you know, or if you still, if you don't stop this, then when we get home, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to start doing the mind games and things like that. Whereas, I've also seen in Walmart a kid, you know, having a meltdown and the mom reaches down and spanks the kid and the whole Walmart's, you know, horrified because you did that. But the kid shuts up, you know, I mean, there's a, um, you know, I, I'm, I guess, I guess I'm glad that I'm not a parent anymore and I don't judge any parents. I mean, whatever you do, it's your job with the children. Um, I, uh. I, I agree that corporal punishment probably in today's society is just not accepted and probably shouldn't do it. But I do believe you have to get the kids' attention, whatever it is. And I really like the things in the realm of physical because it's something physical and tangible. And then it's over because typically physical things are, you know, there's a, there's a beginning to it and an end to it. It's like prison, right? I mean, there, there's just a beginning and an end. Whereas when you start going into the realm of emotional or intellectual, um, you know, you, you, you want to try to out-reason a child or out-emotional a child and, and you're playing with areas that are just very difficult because they're on the inside as opposed to the physical stuff, which is at the outside. I hope that's making sense. Um, I don't know. So when I read this in verse 9, do not uh, withhold your hand from your son and daughter. I don't necessarily think this has to be corporal punishment. But I think it's that, you know, don't let sin go. I, this, is, this is very, very true. You know, if your child, if you've set up a standard or your child is doing something that's, that's sinful and you want to correct that, you should do that. That is a job of a parent. You should correct the sin because if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to mess up your child in the world. So it is good to not withhold your hand from your son and daughter, whatever that's a physical corporal thing or a physical timeout or a physical, I'm going to do this punishment for you. Um, that's, uh, I, I, think, I, I think that's good, um, good, good advice. So I don't really have anything wrong with chapter nine, uh, chapter four, verse nine. All right. So um, yeah, it's, it's, we're about, it's about time. So uh, we'll pick up in, in verse 10 tomorrow and uh, we'll continue going through this. Oh man, I'm, it is looking like this might be, well, I don't think it's, well, we'll just have to see how long this takes because um, now, now that I'm getting into it, it's really kind of fun. So <laughs> let's close in prayer. Gracious God, for the blessings of this day, we thank you uh, for this time together and your spirit. We uh, so much appreciate you. Uh, be with us today. Uh, fill us with your grace and your love and your peace. 
Until we meet again tomorrow, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.